today here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment in which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, Contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Dr. Andrew Thorne. Wanted to say hi, Andrew. Hello, Mike. How are you? Good. Uh, before we get started, uh, let me tell our listeners about a couple of exciting things that are uh, coming up here at Sandler, uh, we have a uh, networking program called Tip Club, which I sponsor here in Cincinnati. That's coming up August 21st, and uh, we have uh, a couple of really interesting guests following uh, Andrew here on the show. We have uh, John Rogaine from uh, Cap Gemini Sketty. And we have Chris Cole from Intelligrated, an IT resources company. And uh, we, we are going to have uh, Richard Lajeunesse, the new president of the Cincinnati Rotary Club, uh, on October 3rd. Uh, let me tell everyone about you, Andrew. Uh, Andrew Dr. Andrew Thorne uh, provides behavioral-based leadership strategies to individuals who are seeking to bring their personal and professional responsibilities into full harmony. His clients achieve more because more and experience balanced growth for their own benefit and for the benefit of the people that they lead. His confidential work over the last 20 years with senior leaders and C-level executives helps them establish trust quickly and deeply. He's known for his ability to address difficult conversations without creating conflict. He fosters a strength-based approach and is constantly looking for ways to help people become the best that they can be. He's personally guided two of the top 50 business thinkers currently listed on the Thinkers 50 list. His work extends to over 50 major corporations and clients and over 250 senior leaders, many of the Fortune 500 companies. Andrew is a pioneer and a leader in the field of life-work balance. Andrew is widely recognized for his breakthrough thinking on how to help people discover their sense of purpose and create a greater meaning their personal and professional experiences. Uh, Andrew graduated with a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine University. Uh, Dr. Thorne also holds a PhD in consulting psychology and a master's degree in personal and executive coaching. Uh, Andrew lives near Los Angeles with his wife, uh, Stacy, and their seven children. Wow, seven children. I have three kids, and I thought that was a lot. <laughs> Seven's a lot. <laughs> Seven's a lot. Uh, yeah, it is. In, in your own words, Andrew, perhaps you could tell our listeners uh, how you got here and how you came to the idea of writing this book, leading with your legacy in mind. Sure. Well, the book was inspired by actually life, the experiences that I've had through my own life in raising a big family. But mostly it was it was inspired by the death of my father, which happened in 2001. 
And he was 30 years older than I am. And when he died, I had the opportunity to think about my own experiences in life and my own existence. And I wondered to myself, if I were to die in 30 years, would I be ready? And would I be happy with the kind of life that I led? And the answer was a clear no. And so that moment, his death motivated a lot of opportunity for growth in me and to look forward and to think about life differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long did it actually take you to write the book? The very interesting question and story about writing this book. I actually, you know, the book is published by McGraw-Hill. And I had written quite a, quite a bit when I contracted with them to be the publisher. And they accepted what I had written. But then after I completed the book, they thought the book was uh, too personal in nature and they wanted it to be more of a, a, a business book. And so they asked me to go back and write again and they gave me six weeks to do it in. And so I wrote a, a rewrite, but it was a whole rewrite. I wrote a whole new book in, in six weeks. It's not, not like the first book that I had written for them at all. That book is yet to be published, but it will be soon. But this book just came out from the experiences that I had in working with McGraw-Hill and talking with them about what they really wanted. And so I wrote it, and I got it done in six weeks, and they loved it. And very few edits were made. It came out, and, and now here it is, a, a number one seller on Amazon, and continues to do well. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. When did it actually come out? So I think the official publication date was March 21st, but they started shipping books on the 27th of February, and that then became what, what was the official pub date. Oh, okay. It's been out, so it's been out for four or five months now. Good, good. Uh, Sandler's published uh, quite a few books recently. The first book was uh, that David Sandler wrote. Uh, was done uh, in, 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 in such a way as um, the day the book was published, he was already dead, and uh, it was very hard for him to do the, the Larry King show, etc. Uh, right. about, about the book, uh, one of the first things I noticed as I was reading through it, Andrew, is your definition of leadership. Leadership is one of those things that gets terribly confused and muddled. Uh, perhaps you could share with our listeners your definition of leadership. Yeah, I think that a lot of people think that leadership is about their title or their role and about their position, about their authority, about their opportunity to take charge and to lead. But it's, and leadership is different than that. So really, most of the time when we're moving up inside an organization, we're thinking about the question, what's in it for me? at least in all of the training that I've done and in the work that I've done. And when we were working with our employees, we're asking them the question, what's in it for them? We have to answer that question for our employees. But a leader never answers that question. Leadership is simply about making things better for others. And it's about our opportunity to work with other people and to make their experiences better because they've been in our, under our influence, under our care, under our guide. And so to me, the definition of leadership is just simple, making things better for others. Mm-hmm. That sounds a lot like uh, servant leadership. Well, it would be a lot like servant leadership because we're, when we're serving others, we're making things better for them. And so naturally, you know, our, our, our intent just is that. And a lot of times nobody thinks about that. We don't think, what can I do to make things better around here? We think, how can I make more money around here? And that mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily answer the question, how can I make things better? Right. Um, and there have been a lot of uh, leadership books over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, some of which make sense, some of them don't make sense. Uh, believe it or not, one of the ones that made most sense to me were the Attila the Hun uh, leadership books. Yeah. 
Uh, I haven't read those ones. So. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a really good uh, series of Attila the Hun books. Let me turn around. Uh, Robert Weiss, uh, Wes Roberts, Ph.D., was the author. And it was called Leadership Secrets uh, of Attila the Hun. And now, it, 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 the first proviso was you have to look look the other way and say uh, the, all the rape and pillage and problems that he caused uh, were, were not a direct uh, endorsement of his leadership skills. But the leadership style that he had uh, is what they were talking about. Uh, anyway, let's, let's uh, jump, and maybe this is a big jump, to the connection between leadership and legacy. Um, how should a leader divide his time? Because that, that, that seemed to be one of the themes in your book. Well, I think what I'm thinking about when I talk about dividing our time is more about the, the book is written not just for leaders with a capital L, those leaders that are in a role or in a title, in a position, in a business. It's written for all of us, the leader with the small L, recognizing that all of us have the opportunity each day to make things better for others. And so we need to be personal best leaders, meaning we need to lead in our own sphere of influence and we need to work for our own legacy. We need to take charge of that and to be accountable for it. So in the book, I talk about the time because the book is written to a business perspective. It's written about the work that we do each day. And I just make the point that if you started work when you were 20 years old and worked until you were 65, it would be a 45-year experience. And most people work an average of 10 hours a day, five days a week. And so if you added all those hours up, you would spend 117,000 hours at work. And when I took those hours then and thought about it from a different perspective and thought about, well, how much time would I sleep during that period? And if you're lucky, you would sleep 132,000 hours. And I say lucky because that means you got eight hours of sleep each day. And then how much time would you take taking care of your personal responsibilities like getting to and from work and eating and taking care of the lawn and getting the mail and going to breakfast, lunch, and dinner and all kinds of different things? And that'd be about 112,000 hours which would leave you 32,000 hours to use any way you wanted. And those would be the hours that you would spend on life, and that's where most books are focused on, is how do you have a more enjoyable life. Leading with your legacy in mind is about how do you have a more enjoyable work experience. So all of the things in the book deal with just that. How do you make those 117,000 hours more meaningful? And I, I thought this was made sense because that's where we spend our most time that's where we're most productive. That's where we often make our biggest impact, and, we, and we're with the people the longest when we spend time at work. And so that, that book is about that. How do we take those 117,000 hours and make them most productive? Mm. It's, it's an interesting perspective. Uh, Sandler had a perspective uh, on, on work and in dividing time into uh, two camps, uh, pay time, which were time that you could be productive in the – individual endeavor that you're in, uh, say 9 to 5, and no pay time, uh, which went from 5.01 p.m. to 8.59 a.m. In those hours, you do, you do all the work that is not possible to be done during pay time, whether it's uh, for salespeople, preparation, uh, looking online, looking people up or companies up on LinkedIn, uh, that you would travel between locations. Uh, so the definition of time uh, changes uh, 
based on what job title you're in. I could see that many CEO leaders would uh, uh, have more uh, responsibilities and to do more things, um, and they stretched out a little bit further. Um, there was one leader that we worked with. Tell me what you think of this guy. Uh, he would send send me emails at 2 in the morning. There would be four pages long. Uh, kind of a stream of consciousness, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, frankly, it was very hard to respond to that kind of an email. Well, it, it would be, but that's generally what leaders are thinking about. They're They're dealing with such big problems that they can't even sleep at night, and then when they try to write it all down, because there's so many things going on around them, they can't even make sense of it themselves. So it's re- rather random. Mm-hmm. And I have those kinds of I have those kinds of experiences all the time with my clients because they're they're so consumed by what's going on and what they are doing that they have a hard time thinking about who they are, which is really where the legacy conversation takes us. It's not about what we do. That would be a conversation about our legend. It's about who we are, which is really what our legacy is. And by legacy, you mean what you leave behind. No, that's no. I don't. I don't. Legacy is a different word than that. We've come to accept that as what legacy means. But the original usage of the word was actually about people who were sent to create a future outcome, and it was they were the ambassadors and the missionaries and the legates that were sent from the you know colonial world and back back before that, back in the 1300s and the 1200s, and they started sending these people out to to establish the community that from which they came in other places, a future. But so many of them died in the process of doing this that we started changing the meaning of the word in the 1500s to mean what they left behind. But legacy truly is about what we carry with us and how we create our vibrant future for ourselves. And when we think about what we let, leave behind, that's really either the impact we make or the legend we create through the work that we do. Okay. Uh, we're going to be back with... Uh Andrew, in about two minutes, we're going to take a uh, commercial break, and we're going to listen to Jimmy Fox talk about Tip Club. Jimmy, why don't you take it away? Hi, I'm Jimmy Fox of Tip Club. Tip Club is a professional networking organization whose members help each other succeed. We meet once per month and provide a forum where business-to-business professionals are able to connect with more desirable opportunities and build long-term strategic partnerships. I'm inviting Cincinnati Business Talk listeners to come to our free networking event. You'll have the opportunity to meet new people, share leads and referrals, and grow your business through strategic alliances. Membership in our Cincinnati group is open to only one person per specific trade or occupation. Business-to-business professionals only, please. We do not accept multi-level marketing or recruiting-driven memberships. This is our only group in Cincinnati. We'll meet on the third Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, 4357 Ferguson Drive, Cincinnati, Ohio. To reserve a seat, please go to www.tipsclub.com and click on the Events tab at the top of the page. Then, just scroll down the list until you come to the Cincinnati event. Or you may call 800-798-0270. That's 1-800-798-0270. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next networking event.
This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Dr. Andrew Thorne. Uh, Andrew, why don't you tell everyone uh, how they can get their own copy of uh, your book? Sure. The book can be purchased through Amazon. It can be purchased in Barnes & Noble, most of your local bookstores. We're fortunate enough to have the book published by McGraw-Hill, and so they do a great job in putting it in places where people can get it easily. And it's available via a Kindle version, iBooks. It's available in hard copy. And I actually prefer people to buy a hard copy if they can because then when they're reading it, somebody sees and asks what they're reading, whereas on a Kindle it's very hard for them to make that connection with us. That's interesting. Uh, since I work with a lot of sales professionals and sales businesses, I find that uh, 75% of them uh, would prefer to read a book by listening to it on audio. Uh, yes. Is your book available on Audible yet or on CD? It is not available on audio. I've been talking with McGraw-Hill about that, but they haven't made that happen yet. So it's, I guess everybody will just have to stay tuned for that. It's not available yet. Mm -hmm. It is a frequent question that I get, though. Okay. Uh, one of the bestsellers that Sandler had, the 49 Sandler Rules, uh, it went to audio about a year after the book uh, was published, and the audio version actually has an extra chapter compared to the print version. Uh, when we talk about leaders and, and leadership style, uh, what do you think are the key leadership lessons that, that a leader should take out of your book? Well, I think they're, I think they're various. The first is, is that, that each leader is responsible for their own leadership development. So I think a lot of times when we're working inside an organization, we expect them to sit down and train us and to give us what we need, and they do, but they're only going to train us on how we can complete our job or the competencies, the skills that we need to work through that, but they won't come back to us and teach us about our behaviors, and I'm always asked, why not, and the reason why not is because the competencies, they can train in masses. There's a lot of people in the group, and they're training the same thing over and over, but the behaviors are individual in nature. And so it requires us to put our own effort into it because they, the organization doesn't necessarily know what it is they need. Now, the deal, the, you know, the thing that happens is that if we know what we need in our behaviors, the organization will definitely help us, but they probably generally won't approach us with it. So we need to know, and then again, if we're thinking about it just for a second, if we're entrepreneurs and we're running our own business, we really are responsible for our own uh, leadership development. So we need to be able to go out and get the training that we need. We need to be able to assess for ourselves. And this is why people hire coaches. This is why people bring in consultants. They help with the training that they need to get. And so the first lesson is you're responsible for your own training. The second is you have to listen to your own voice. Because you're responsible for it, you have to listen to what your voice is telling you that you need to develop. And this is really important because a lot of people think that they can find out what somebody else needs, but that's not the way it works. We have to really search deeply inside of ourselves and ask ourselves the question, what do I need to grow and develop in my, in my work needs? And then we have a lot of we have a lot of different lessons that go on you know the base the various arcs of leadership and the seasons of leadership, which teach us how to really mature the leadership uh, abilities that we have in in the beginning of our life, and and we help it helps us mature those as we move to more uh, developed leadership roles. Okay, here at San Luis uh, we have a, a phrase that we say no buzzwords, so some people might not understand what what you meant by arc of leadership. Yes. Okay, well, in the book, I take the idea that our leadership experiences are circular. 
And that means that when, in order to be able to really examine the circular nature of our leadership experiences, in other words, we're going to have, we're going to face the same types of issues throughout our leadership career. They'll just intensify as we get more deeper into our opportunities. And so in order to examine that circular nature, I pull out some of the arcs that take us from point A to point B as we move around that, that, uh, that circle of leadership. And that helps us really get into the idea of how do we mature the leadership behaviors that we have. Mm-hmm. At the end of each chapter, you have something interesting called the leadership questionnaire. Uh, and I'm just going to read from uh, one of them, the first sentence. Uh, okay. Am I willing to let go of the myth of balance? so that I can work on bringing my focus to what really matters to my life. A lot of people have this uh, myth of uh, work, uh, home life balance, or a balance between work, home life, and uh, whatever other uh, areas of importance are in their life, whether it's um, religion or some people it's things like the Rotary Club or Kiwanis Club. Uh, yeah. Why do you call this balance a myth. Well, I think I'll even be, say it more strongly than that. Not only is it a myth, but I think it's irrelevant. I think balance is the wrong objective. And I, the way I like to describe this is just by simply thinking about an activity that you and I do every day and probably most people that are listening, and that is walking. Assuming that we're all able-bodied individuals, when we get up, walking requires us to balance. But when we get up to walk, I don't think anyone listening ever thinks about, unless they're you know, less able or disabled, they don't think about the balance. They just get up and they start walking. What do they think about? They think about where do they want to go. And it's the same in our career. If we know where we're going, then we don't feel out of balance. It's only when there's something wrong, when we become disabled in some nature or you know, tormented inside our life, that we become feeling out of balance. And that's generally when we don't have our right focus. We don't know where we're going to begin with, and so we feel disconnected with our existence. And that's why I just think that we need to let go of the idea of balance, because balance happens naturally. We don't ever have to really think about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you've worked with uh, many key executives of lots of different companies, and and I've done the same. Uh, Many times they get called into a situation where there's a a key executive who is uh, way out of control, uh, too tough on his people, not reacting right, um, theoretically spending almost 100% of his available time on his business. Have you ever run into a a key executive like that? Oh, naturally. But I don't think it's a balance problem. I think it's more a question of them not understanding their individual behavior, not understanding the impact they're making on others, not understanding the vision that they have for the business, and not understanding how to implement that vision. And so when we begin to work on those things, so naturally with all of those things, in disarray, it's natural that they would feel out of balance. But it really isn't a balance question. It's a focus question. They're not focusing on the right things. I've never met one individual like you've described who understands that that's the impact he's making on other people. Mm. He knows something's wrong. They don't come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm making people miserable around here. They don't, they don't understand that. They think, what's wrong with the people around here? Yeah, they're quitting. Yeah. Or I can't bring the right people into the organization. Uh, yeah. It, it seems like that's a, uh, a common story. Perhaps you can describe the most interesting leader that you've ever worked with. You don't have to use their name. Yeah, well, I can use the name because I think he's you know famous and he's he's phenomenal, and that's Marshall Goldsmith. 
And he's, Marshall is probably well-known by the audience, maybe not. He was ranked by Forbes magazine as the number one executive coach in the world. He was, he was listed as one of the thinkers' top 50. He was listed as the number one thinker by thinkers' top 50, and then he's been listed in the top 10 for the last uh, 15 years or so. And he's just a very fascinating individual, and I've had the opportunity to be his personal coach on and off for the past nine years. And he has some really difficult things to work with around his time. He's in a different city almost every day, and yet in order for him to stay and remain relevant, he needs to write. And so trying to trying to find the time to write and to find the time to be traveling to a different city and working with a different group every day was difficult for him, and so my job was to help him was to help him get writing. And when he wrote his best-selling book, "What Got You Here Won't Get You There," I was I played an instrumental role in helping him do that. So much so that in in, in acknowledgments, I'm one of the first people that he mentions for having helped him do that. Interesting. And uh, one of the reasons that that uh, as you were in on having you on the show is that at the front of the book it is it, forwarded by Marshall Goldsmith. I said if he endorses you, I've got to talk to you. Yeah, well, and he, and he again, he endorses me uh, because of the work that I've been able to do, and if you read that, that forward, he endorses me really well. Good. We're going to take a, a short commercial break here, Andrew, and uh, we're going to listen to a couple of Sandler commercials. Imagine you just left your prospect's office and he now has your proposal, quote, or estimate. What do you suppose he's going to do with that valuable information that you just gave him for free? Call you tomorrow with an order? Get real! He's shopping it around to the competition. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates. I'm the most experienced sales sales trainer in Cincinnati. I'm constantly amazed how salespeople operate. They believe a prospect asking for a proposal means the sale is as good as closed. Face it, trained prospects will turn you into an unpaid consultant. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, training, and challenging professionals who are 100% committed to long-term sales growth and profitability, no matter what it takes. If you're deadly serious about increasing sales, call me at 513-646-6523. Find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger. Or register now for our next open house, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. This is Mike Roth. Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. At the first sign of trouble, there are three types of business leader. The first type of leader is like a turtle. He pulls his head and tail in and hides in his shell. Turtles hunker down, just trying to survive. The second type of leader is an opportunist. They're like eagles. Eagles spread their wings and take advantage of the winds. They catch the storm wind and rise to new heights. The third group, between turtles and eagles, are called turkeys. Turkeys are average and anxious. They huddle together and move. They never saw. However, turkeys are easy prey for those who seize the opportunity and soar. If someone in your industry goes out of business, are you going to get the business? The question is, which type of leader are you? Will you seize the opportunities to take market share and grow, or will your fate be like the turkeys? If you're serious about growth, call me to arrange a confidential meeting. 513-646-6523. Or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Dr. Andrew Thorne. Andrew, as we you read through your book, you know I noticed uh, a couple of uh, stories about both Gates uh, from Microsoft and Steve Jobs from Apple. Uh, right. Perhaps you could share with our listeners some of your thoughts about these gentlemen. 
So that's a great question when we think about the impact of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Both of them are certainly relevant. We've, we know about them. They're heavy in our consciousness. They created two of the best companies in the world, Microsoft and Apple. They have been known for their wealth, Bill Gates being known as one of the wealthiest individuals, the wealthiest American for many years running, the wealthiest man in the world for many years running, and Steve Jobs certainly being known as one of the most innovative and one of the most creative individuals. And so when we look at their impact, we naturally think about what they did. And it's interesting, though, as to how they saw their life. Steve Jobs never let go of his responsibility. He never let go of his to-do list. He always was out trying to make things better through technology that he developed. And if you read his biography, it's really kind of sad in his biography. At one point, he even told his children that he did not have time for them, that he needed to be focused on creating the iPhone, that the iPhone was the big thing that needed to be developed. And so he left his family to die, basically, in the service of his work, in the service of you and I. But over the years, we'll probably forget who created the smartphone. We've already have other competitors in the smartphone industry that are taking some of the market share and maybe even have a bigger market share now than iPhone. But eventually, we'll forget who created the smartphone, and we'll just have smartphones with us, kind of like that most of us have forgotten who invented the television, yet we all have TVs. So then when we think about Bill Gates, Bill Gates walked away from Microsoft, and he continues to walk away in, in smaller steps, but so much so that now he doesn't really have much to do with them at all. So what does he do with his time? What does he do with his wealth? He created the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and this is a foundation that's doing such remarkable things here in the United States and across the world in making things better. They're working on clean water initiatives. They're working on school funding for people here in the United States. They're working on eradicating diseases and poverty throughout the world. And really, not with a lot of noise about Bill and Melinda Gates, other than the foundation is named after them, but just with a lot of effort, committing lots of financial resources. And they've, and they've ago, got... What's that? Yeah, years ago, uh, Bill Gates is uh, one of the key contributors to the... Uh, eradication of polio through the Rotary Club, and I had the opportunity to be at the convention where, where he was, and he was the uh, keynote speaker, if you would, uh, actually the, the final speaker on the final day, and uh, it was very interesting. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Bill Gates when he was rolling out uh, Windows 1.1. Uh, yeah. It was a, a, an extremely uh, assertive, aggressive uh, move because he was rolling out the product, uh, demonstrating it well before it was ready to go to market. Uh, uh, he was a bold leader in doing that. He so was, he, and he's, been, and he's uh, been just as bold a leader in enrolling some of the other of the world's wealthiest people into his dream of eradicating those diseases and, and doing those things. He continues to and put forth a valiant effort in that and getting people to commit, the really wealthy individuals to commit to give over half of their income away. Right. Half I, of their, their assets away when they die. And I guess I look at Steve Jobs, who essentially was fired at, at Apple uh, and started his own company. I think it was Next Computer. Right. And, uh, he was uh, strong enough to, to come back to Apple. There were many people who wouldn't have had the moral fortitude, the strength, to go back. Well, he did come back and he did many great things, but those are the things that I wonder about when we think, you know, well, how will he be remembered? And he never gave of his resources to make the world a better place. He made the world a better place by giving us some technology, but that technology will be outdated and 
forgotten about, whereas the contributions of Bill and Melinda Gates, those are more legacy. So we have the legend of Steve Jobs, and we have the legacy of Bill and Melinda Gates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people who say that uh, Jobs gave us a, a, a better man-machine interface than Gates ever, ever did, uh, and uh, Gates made a lot of money. He, he was ex- exceptionally uh, aggressive. Uh, well, I think I think the difference, though, that I'm trying to point out, Mike, is not about what they did, not who did more for our world through their efforts at work, but who they are, who they became as a result of those efforts. And it's clear cut. If you read Jobs' biography, you walk away thinking this guy was one of the biggest jerks that ever walked the face of the earth. So what that we got great interfaces between man and technology? He just treated the people around him in an awful, horrific way. And mm-hmm. I, I know that Bill Gates did that, too, early on in his career, but he learned from that, and he learned to care about the human uh, population in a way that Steve Jobs never got to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps Steve Jobs would have gotten there if he lived another 10 years. He might have. But I would think he had six years suffering with pancreatic cancer, so he had a lot of time to think about what would make an impact in the world, and he chose to make his impact with his legend and not with his legacy. Mm-hmm. He, he chose the technology. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like he just woke up one day with a heart attack and died. Pre- we knew he was dying for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, he knew it a lot longer than we did. But yeah, uh, an interesting uh, legacy that Bill Gates is creating. And I, I use that in the in the current tense uh, because it's it's still ongoing. Um, what do you think? Uh, well, you've been working with leaders for more than twenty five years. Perhaps you could give our listeners uh, a leadership tip. A leadership tip. Well, there's well, a lot of them. That's for sure. There are just one or two. Yeah. So I think the very first thing is if you want to be a good leader, you need to imagine who you will become through your leadership efforts and then see if that's who you want to become. So you have to really always be looking out and defining yourself in the future of who you want to be. And the reason why a lot of leaders don't do this is is because it exposes who they are right now. And when, because if I say this is who I want to be, it automatically shines a light also on who I am right now and the gap that needs to be met before I can move from who I am to who I want to be. And so the really best leaders are not afraid of that gap. They look into that gap and they see who they want to be based on, and then relate that to who they are, and then they take who they are and, and imagine what they need to do now to become that new person. And so the very first thing I always tell leaders is you need to begin with the end in mind and think about who it is that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And, again, like I said, that's a question that most of us are afraid of and we run from and it's difficult to answer. It does get easier the more we dig into that question. So I encourage people to start there. The second is is that we always need to be getting from our stakeholders information on how we can become better because we have blind spots. And so we have to use a technique that Marshall Goldsmith you know, began we called Feed Forward, and I use it a lot. And it's more powerful than feedback. And this is just simply the opportunity to ask those people around you if they are willing to give you positive suggestions on how you can get better at a very specific uh, initiative, a very specific behavior, one that you've thought about and one that you've decided that you want to get better at this. And then you've enrolled the people around you to helping you become a better leader, and they feel more engaged in the process and more inspired by you because they see you working on your leadership skills and techniques. That's very interesting. That uh, 
sounds like it would give a leader a substantial advantage. It does. It, it, it actually gives them an opportunity to, for people to see them as people, and that makes the opportunity to work to be more effective in their work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Organizations have different levels of leadership uh, in an organization, from the CEO uh, of a large conglomerate down to a, a president of a division, down to a, uh, a regional manager. Uh, are there any differences in the way that uh, each one of those levels of people should look at leadership? I don't think so. In fact, I think if we try to propose a difference, then we make our leadership responsibility as a one-up, one-down relationship. So the only thing that really happens to us when we're appointed to be a leader is we gain more responsibility. But with that responsibility also comes the opportunity to be more of an influence for good and to help others really get things done in a more effective way. And so when if we start thinking that the tips are different for different levels, then we start putting in our mind an idea that somebody like Steve Jobs is more important than perhaps, you know, Bob Smith that works at the bottom of the organization at Apple. They both have a responsibility to be better leaders and to help mm -hmm. the organization grow. And it's not a one up, one down position, it's just the way it is. And and no one ever heard of Bob Smith, nor will they. That's right. But that's but those are the people that actually create the results inside the organization. So so I believe they're just as important, even though I haven't heard of them. Mm-hmm. In a uh, in an organization, you know, a ten million dollar a year company, which is not the biggest organization in the world, most people would say it's small business. How do you think leader ought to deal with his people? What what well, thought should they use? Yeah, what 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 should they use? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. What well, should they use? It could be a authoritarian yeah. style, a deadline style, a uh, collaborative style. Well, I think this is important for the individual to figure that out for themselves, so it would be different for everyone. It'd be, I would want them to use their natural style, whatever that would be. And so part of the work is discovering what is your style. We, we want leadership. You mentioned earlier that, you know, here on the radio, on your program, you don't like to have buzzwords. Well, mm -hmm. the, styles that you just, the styles that you just mentioned are each a buzzword until I know how they apply into my own world. So when I go to work with a client, I don't say, well, you know, here's these different styles of leadership. Let's, you know, have you work on this style. Now, I ask, I ask them through assessment, through careful assessment and finding out what their people around them say are their strengths and what the people around them say are their weaknesses. And then we work to their strengths. We really don't have time to work on their weaknesses. We just want to do more of what they're already good at. And if we spend their time doing more of what they're already good at, then they're much more effective than if we work on the things that they're not very good at. So the, mm -hmm. the, the tip that I would have for the, you know, the leader of a small business or a mid-sized business or even a large-sized business is find out what you're really good at and then do more of that. Hire the people to do the things that you're not very good at. Oh, there's a really good piece of advice. Hire some people that are much better than you to do the pieces that uh, you're not the best at. Yes. Good. We're going to listen to a Sam uh, Rule now, and uh, this is Sam Rule number three. Hi, I'm Mike Crandall with Sandler Training, here to talk to you about Sandler Rule number three, no mutual mystification. So what does it mean? Well, let me ask, have you ever entered into a sales call 
with an expectation that it was going to end one way and then to find out that it did not end that way but another way, bad or good? Or have you ever been in a meeting with an expectation of what was going to transpire only to find out that that isn't actually what transpired? Both of those are examples of where there was mutual mystification. In general, you can think of mutual mystification as any time when two parties have different expectations and don't take the time to clarify them in advance of the interaction. It's our job as sales professionals to be intentional about finding out what expectations people have, to define phrases and terms in advance that might be misunderstood, to tie up any loose ends, also to make sure that all parties are in sync with what has happened as well as what will happen. I like to say this is summed up by one of my favorite phrases. The source of all the world's frustration is unfulfilled expectation. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Dr. Andrew Thorne. Uh, Andrew, we have a theory of operation here at Sandler that Simple solutions to complex problems are invariably wrong. Therefore, if you're going to solve a complex problem, you have to use an equally complex solution. Perhaps you could share with our listeners a complex problem that you've run into uh, and the equally complex solution that, in theory, they could move to their own industry or company. Sure. I was hired to work in Argentina with a company that had had a new leader brought in, and it was a global operation. And so the problem, the challenge was is the people just weren't working together as a team, and the leader was the problem, actually. And when we discovered that, so that's about as complex as I think you can get is these interpersonal problems where people just have a style that's not resonating with the leader as, as a leader and with the team. And so when they do that, nobody wants to follow them. And so the real problem was, or the real solution was to get the leader to stop thinking he was so smart and to start thinking that there was opportunity to really listen and find out what his people were telling him. This didn't mean that he would follow them and do what they said that they wanted to do. It just meant that he needed to understand the issues that they were struggling with before he could start prescribing things. And so perhaps the biggest complex problem with most leaders is that they're usually the smartest person in the room. And when they're the smartest person in the room, they can't stop and listen enough to the people that they think are somewhat less smarter than they are so that they can find out what they need to know. And so the complex solution is to stop and to listen and to really hear, meaning that you're willing to act on what the people are saying to you. Uh, when you say the smartest person in the room, are, are leaders inherently the smartest people in a company? No, but they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've run into that that issue too. Uh, I, I once worked in a company that was owned by uh, the English, and uh, when the buyout was complete, they put an English CEO in, and uh, they brought him over from England. He was completely lost in the uh, American about the American way to do business, and uh, I, I don't think he lasted six months before he was replaced by uh, by an American. No well, it's, it's, yeah, it's easy to be thinking that you get your role as a leader as a, because you're the smartest or because you're the best, and that's generally not the case. Most leaders, when they close the door on the very first day of their leadership, is, is fraught with questions of doubt and the question of, well, what am I going to do now? How am I going to do this? 
And the people that get in touch with that are the most likely to be good leaders. They're most likely to move to the next level because what what they did before will not help them now as they move to the next level. Mm-hmm. Uh, are most good leaders visionaries as opposed I, to I don't think. I yeah, I don't think that they are necessarily. I think they have some level of vision, but they don't really know what to do. Most leaders get promoted because they did something effective in their in their in their work side of the strategy. They were productive. They did something, and so they were they were brought forward because they're productive. But now they have to have their handle on many things, many parts of the business. And generally speaking, they're not used to that. They've just had one function, whether it was a sales role or a marketing role or a credit role or an accounting role or a legal role in a business, and then they're promoted, and now they have to think about all of those things. And so I just don't think that, you know, when they get there, they're always ready. And the, the biggest mistake is they think they are ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you think about what you've put in the book for leaders, What's the, the single lesson that you'd like them to take away? To put the book down after they get through all 200-odd pages. Uh, I mean, you have the even number of pages, too. But, uh, yeah. What would you you'd like them to uh, leave with? What thought process? Yeah, I'd like them to leave with the thought that they are in charge of their career. They get to shape it. If they're in a role where they're not happy, then it's a free country. They can work anywhere, and they can take matters into their own hand. And the way they do that is by organizing around their purpose, what they think is purposeful and what they think will bring them greater meaning. And so I think we make a lot of sacrifices, and sacrifice requires that you see the beginning and the end. But in the business world, we only see the beginning. We think we we can just lead out and that we'll find our way as we go to where we're going. And that's just not true. And so I want people to realize that they have to think about their purpose and they have to think about what will be meaningful in their work experiences. And that when they do that, that will in turn give them the opportunity to make their life more meaningful and more purposeful also. Mm-hmm. And this one, this one might be a big stretch of a question, but uh, after someone's read, uh, a middle-level manager has read uh, your book, uh, how should they assess a new organization that they're thinking of joining? Well, they would ask themselves, what do they want to get, and who do they want to become through the role that they're going to play in that organization, and then they would have to assess whether or not that's a reality, if that's a reasonable expectation, what they what they hope to gain by being involved there. And if they don't think it's a reasonable expectation, then they shouldn't engage in the organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a, here's a good idea. Yeah, here's a great here's a great example of that in the news just recently. So we yeah, have this company called so we have this so we have this company called Hobby Lobby, and Hobby Lobby has some thoughts on what they think is legitimately great ways to guide their business. Those thoughts are not obscure; they're not hidden. Anybody that knows the organization of Hobby Lobby knows that they have these thoughts. And so as a consumer or as an employee, I have to think about, do I want to buy from them and do I want to go to work for them? And if I do, then I have to accept these expectations that they have because they belong to them. They belong to their enterprise. And every organization has rules and regulations that they want to live by. Whether or not we agree with it, that's not our business. The way we can do it is we can not shop, we can not work, and we can start our own company. And I think too many of us have become so worried that, you know, oh, well, this organization is a good one. Well, great, then don't go work for them. Don't buy their products. That's how we vote in America is with our dollars, and we vote with our with our willingness to go to work there or not. I mean, the same kind of thing, the same sort of thing happens with Donald Sterling with the Clippers. 
You know, where mm-hmm. he goes out and he makes some really derogatory comments in the privacy of his own home in a time when he didn't think he was being recorded. And now there are people on the team who say, well, I don't think I'll play if he's still the owner. Well, this is history that we've known of Donald Sterling for many years. But beyond that, these were his private opinions, and he's run his business according to what would be legal. He's hired people of different ethnicities. He's he's promoted people of different ethnicities. He's had them in their senior leadership roles in his business. So he's always had these personal thoughts, and they've been widely spoken about because this isn't the first time he's had charges. But people decided that they wanted to go to work for him. Well, if you have an issue with somebody like Donald Sterling or Hobby Lobby or whatever, Planned Parenthood, you know, an, an, op, an example on the opposite side of the scale, well, then you should go work somewhere else. You shouldn't try to change that environment because it's not going to work. Go work somewhere else. It's a free country. You can go. And so evaluate the values of an organization and, and see how they align with your own values. And if they don't, you have two choices. You can bring your values to their to match their values, or you can go work somewhere else. And I, mm-hmm. I think we need to hear that message more often, that it's about what I'm going to go out and do more than what you've done here for me. Right, right. It becomes very difficult to change an organization. And if you find yourself right. in an organization right. that does not uh, have the same value set that you do, uh, perhaps you need to find an organization that has the same value set that you have. Yeah. Uh, difficult decision for some people. Right. Perhaps you can just uh, finish the show up here by giving us an example of a, a positive change that you've seen in a leader where you've uh, worked on their strengths. So one of the leaders I worked with was rated by her employees and direct reports as a bad listener. And as we began to work on her listening skills, I discovered that she was very, she actually was a very good listener. The problem was that she didn't do anything that her employees told her to do. Now, the real effort for a leader is not to do everything that employees do, but as a leader, you have to demonstrate that you actually heard what they said and that you're moving in the direction that the team can see collectively is the way we ought to go. And the way we do that is to acknowledge the the feedback that we receive and acknowledge the suggestions that we get and then make a decision and then commit to that decision and to work forward. And so as we worked with this leader and helped her in her efforts to, to be to be not only a better listener but a better hearer, which means we actually go out and do something about it, or we say why we're not going to do something about it in a clear and upfront way, and she was seen by her by her direct reports as a better leader. And all it really meant was that she started acting on the suggestions that they made or not acting but telling them why she wasn't going to act. And then that increased the communication, and that's usually what it is, is a problem of communication, and it made her be seen as a more effective leader. Great. Uh, Andrew, I want to uh, thank you for being a guest here on the show, and I'm going to be sending out to you a copy of uh, one of the newest Sandler books. Uh, we have a book on leadership called Transforming Leaders, the Sandler Way. should be interesting reading for you, uh, written by one of our trainers, Dave Arch. Uh Again, thanks for being on the show today, Andrew. And, My pleasure, uh, Mike. Great. Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Zero, zero.